Welcome to the next episode, episode 12 of That So Second Millennium. And it's our regular ongoing exploration of uh, science and religion, faith and reason, as they were, are, and will be. And I'm Bill Schmidt, and the person who's most uh, uh, educated and quite insightful about these matters is my good friend and colleague, Dr. Paul Giesting. How are you doing, Paul? I'm doing well. It's good to talk to you, Bill. Good. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, you've been traveling a lot, and that's very much uh, on point for what we'll be talking about in this episode and future ones. You recently returned from the annual conference of the Society of Catholic Scientists. I know it was held in Washington, D.C. Uh, early in uh, uh, June 2018, um, and I know it's a new and growing group, um, and I also imagine that all our listeners will want to keep abreast of that group and what they're saying, because that group is interested in the kinds of subjects we've been talking about in our podcast, and I'm so glad that you were there. Let me ask you to just kind of give us a kind of overview of what your visit the attendance was like there. Yeah, it was a it was a fascinating experience, and you were the actually the one who uh, tipped me off that uh, such a group and such a conference even existed, for which I'm Thanks very grateful. Yeah, they, uh, I'm happy that worked out. Yeah. It's good to have it's good to have a contact, uh, you know, hanging out in South Bend, uh, attracting uh, information like this. <laughs> so I had I had not heard of it uh, previously, and uh, yeah, so it's it is a very new group. They had a conference last year in Chicago, and uh, at the conference this year, uh, Stephen Barr, who is you know, seems pretty clearly to be the the moving force behind it, although, I mean, certainly he's got a handful of other people who are very enthusiastic about it. Um, but at the moment, uh, he seems to sort of be the face of the organization. So he said at the beginning yeah, of the conference, yeah. well, and of course he, he has to, he drops the name, of the, the very first name he drops is that, you know, well, Archbishop Chaput is, uh, you know, takes an interest in our group and is our, you know, sort of uh, spiritual advisor. I'm like, that's, that's a solid get. <laughs> Interesting, yeah. Um, so yes, those were my notes. Archbishop Chaput has an ad advisory role in society. Check. Okay. Um, membership grew from about 330 to about 750 this past year. So as we were discussing, Whoa. you know, the, the beauty of being uh, a small uh, organization, or for that matter, a small podcast, is that uh, it's uh, it's not necessarily impossible to get uh, percentages above 100 percent for growth. So, uh, so that, that's nice. I mean, there's, you know, it, it's good to know that there are that many people in the not dreadfully large world of, uh, you know, academic scientists who are interested in this. That's kind of heartening. Right. And it actually was tied on to the end. Um, so there was actually a whole week at uh, Catholic University of America in D.C. where this was being held that... Uh -huh. um, Graduate students, I guess postdocs, not sure, 
Uh, there was a probably undergraduates to some extent. Actually, there were. In fact, I my roommate was an undergraduate. Um, so those of us who stayed in the dorm at the uh, yeah. north end of campus. Um, but anyway, there was something put on by the Thomistic Institute. Yeah. Uh, another group probably worth uh, keeping an eye on. Uh, but they had they had a series of speakers strung out over. It sounded like at least you know Tuesday through Friday maybe. Mm-hmm. And so that was down at the Dominican House of Studies, which is across the street from uh, the south side of camp of CUA and the uh, the uh, the National Shrine. Right. So, right. so yeah, so that was uh, that was also part of this. So they're uh, so somebody's got a good sense of you know piling things together and sort of maximizing uh, investment in time and effort. So that's good to know. That's that's a, that's a good thing for a university to have a. A sense of efficiency about yeah. So uh, so that's where and when it took place, and uh, then tell me something about the group that was in attendance. What what kinds of uh, specializations and what kinds of folks from what kinds of institutions has Barr gathered here gathered into this uh, growing group of his. So it's uh, the mixture of people attending was fairly diverse. So the the theme of the conference was the human mind and physicalism. Physicalism, more or less materialism, although physicalism has the advantage of being not as familiar a word and therefore one that you can define more precisely. Whereas the word yeah. materialism means everything from you know an actual philosophical outlook outlook to you know the theme of a Madonna song. So <laughs> right. That's a that's a, a broader meaning cloud than they maybe wanted to uh, involve in that. So the there were quite a few neuroscientists in attendance. On the other hand, the people speaking skewed more toward physicists. So there's a there was a feel that the group probably started. Stephen Barr is a physicist. Um, you know, Karen Oberg, who is one of the other sort of major uh, people who seem to be involved in uh, organizing the conference. She's a astronomer, so very much in the uh, in the, uh, the the fellow travelers with physicists uh, bin, so to speak. And right. uh, yeah, I, so I get the I get the idea that at this very early point, there are a lot of physicists who are actively involved in it, and that this year they were logically trying to attract more neuroscientists. And there's cer- there's, there certainly were some interesting talks that were more, you know, from, you know, practicing a practicing neuroscientist who had a very good talk named Aaron Scherger, who's, uh, he's based in France, and then um, some other stuff, uh, some, some other people. Uh, there's a mathematician who gave an interesting talk about uh, Gödel's uh, theorem, which is a very, very lively topic in the con- in the context of you know, human mind. Can we are, we are we really a quote unquote machine or a quote unquote computer, which is a topic um, to come back well, to at an, another point um, and indeed. sort of and sort of uh, meditate on the idea of uh, does it really what kind of an accusation is it really to say that our minds are like computers when we're the people who built computers? That's a theme I'd right. like to get back to and explore at some point. But that's certainly. Um, but but as I said, you know. Probably the biggest name in terms of someone's overall academic reputation 
was at the end of the day on Saturday, they actually had uh, Juan Martin Malvasina, who is a pretty big, pretty big name in string theory. Not that I am, you know, I I kind of had to be told. Well, I had to be reminded of that. I have I have read about him um, in a book for um, in, in a book about string theory and where it's gone and where it might be going. Uh. But, uh, but but as far as you know, people who are actually practicing, this is the guy next to me. He's like, wow, they got Maldacena to come, which is you know, yeah, he, he is definitely um, a well-known person. If if string theory ever <laughs> ever pans out, ever gets to the point where you can actually say yes, this and this flavor, um, it's it's not inconceivable. Maldacena might wind up with a Nobel. I suspect um, that's my guess uh, from not, not really being a sort of Kremlinologist. That's not really the right term, but whatever you call the, you know, trying to read the minds of uh, the people in Norway who give out the prize, that might be that might be there in their thinking. <laughs> he's certainly right. he's one of the big names. Huh. Huh. So it's an interesting uh, group. Interesting that the uh, uh, physicists uh, dominate. Um, any uh, any particular reason for? The, the grouping that uh, that you did see arising, for instance, uh, as a layperson in all of this, I'd wonder uh, were there uh, folks in uh, chemistry and uh, well uh, biology in a, in a more conventional sense, um, other other areas of science. Uh, there were there, there was a, yeah. a broad scattering of people. There were there were a few chemists. Um, I talked to a woman, a grad student at the University of Pittsburgh, who had basically a chemical slash electrical engineering type of uh, of, of talk or a, a poster. Actually, it, was, it wasn't a talk. Oh, um, right. they, had, they had a couple of poster sessions, which is something that it's something that you know in my in my corner of the universe. Oh yeah, and they had poster sessions. That's great. And I'm not sure that uh, the broad the broader populace necessarily knows what a poster session is. A poster session is a very common feature in science conferences, certainly geology conferences, uh-huh. that for certain, um, where you have you just you just put together a presentation and you you know you have a two foot by four foot poster perhaps somewhere in that uh, vicinity, and you right. organize your thoughts and present you know it's almost like you have a little scientific paper uh, on this poster, and you stand there, and uh, people come and you know you start uh, conversations. And it can be you can have a bit of a, a formal walkthrough that you can go through, but the point is really to get to where uh, you, you have you know an, an, a conversation, you know, between yourself and the and your uh, your visitor, which is a really nice dynamic. Uh, rather than the you know, I mean, obviously there's a, a lot of value in the the traditional talk. You know, here here are some slides, or some visual aids, or or you could just talk at a lectern. Um, Although we don't do a lot of that in, in hard science anymore, uh, and so that, uh, yeah, the, the poster presentations are nice, uh, very nice info. And so at this point, you know, they're they're simply anyone who wants to, and it did not have to do necessarily have to do with the theme of the conference. Um, so that was so that was interesting, and you know, and talking talking to her about, uh, I mean, just just the whole, you know. Academia, the 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 challenges, uh, psychological, economic, and otherwise, of uh, of being in academia and things like that. 
Right. Um, so and there, that, were, there were a variety of people. Get back to the original question. There was even another geologist who con who came forward and uh, addressed a question to uh, to Stephen Barr at the end of his talk, which was a very intriguing question that uh, had been in the back of my mind. So I'm glad he <laughs> I'm glad he yeah. got up and uh, and, and uh, went to the microphone and asked it. It's something that uh, it's something I'm going to have to think about and direct some reading toward because it is a it's a major major issue in terms of trying to understand quantum physics and the associated philosophy and seeing if it really how it how it really works out in real life um, we'll, we'll get to that hopefully we'll talk about we'll, we'll take some time to talk specifically about what dr. Barr talked about probably in a future episode okay yeah well one thing I'm hearing is that um, uh, there was also a, a what a fairly good diversity of uh, generations, or at least of uh, folks oh, at yeah. different points in their scientific career. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there, there were there were people who, I mean, you know, I, I don't know what, how old Stephen Barr is. My guess would be that he's about he's about your age. Um, mm -hmm. So you know, has has gone a long way through his career, and this is maybe something that he's seeing as a need that he's addressing in the sort of probably well post tenure. I haven't even I haven't even looked up to see yeah, I assume he's a full professor down at the University of Delaware. So, you know. Yeah. Once you tenure, yeah. That's one hurdle. You know, if you're if you're ambitious enough, you're like, yeah, I'm gonna make full professor, that's another hurdle. And then after that it's like, okay, what am I really gonna do with the rest of my life? Um, yeah. I've you know, gotten to basically the top of the ladder, unless you really want to do uh, administration, which I guess if you're starting a uh, a new scientific organization you're doing administration of a different kind hopefully a lot more fun than uh, right. the nuts and bolts right. running an academic department yes yeah. Yeah. pretty easy to envision <laughs> something being more fun than being the chair of an academic department it sounds like a oh my goodness yeah heartily, heartily annoying uh, <laughs> oh I'm sure <laughs> but what so. strikes me as uh, a, a definite uh, a fun aspect uh, to pursue uh, in one's uh, later phases of career uh, is the idea of um, how do I fit my, uh, my physics or my academic uh, science uh, career in with my being a, a Catholic. And uh, that, that truly is interesting that uh, he, A, that he um, took it on to, to make that kind of his new life's work or part of his life's work and uh, that uh, also that uh, no one had done this previously and then also why did he and others feel that it's necessary to be doing it now yeah did so that's, that's, that, that's a question that I had um, very present in my mind and I didn't get to the point where I actually you know, I was I was perhaps being a little too introverted and uh, just sort of watching, <laughs> just watching. Well, that's what David on the first uh, conference, yeah. Basically, being me uh, this first time around, but uh, you know, certainly watching for any evidence about clear and and I didn't see you know what was the instigating event in somebody's mind. You know, what conversation, what thought led to what conversation, led to what. Um, but there's clearly. It's, I mean, what's what's very nice about it is that uh, clearly there was a desire because you know now that to use a uh, to use a chemistry metaphor, now that the seed crystal has been dropped into the solution, uh, uh -huh. there's 
stuff is stuff is crystallizing out at, at a at a nice uh, pace. The kinetics of the reaction are are such that uh, clearly there was a readiness for this. This was yeah, yeah. waiting for this to happen, and uh, and we're all fairly enthusiastic about it. So yeah, yeah. So um, you know, you you pose the question: Should it have existed long of uh, a while back? And like, well. Yeah, I mean, on, on some level, yeah, obviously, um, right. And and it's and it's one of those things that yeah, I think you had to have some sort of nucleating event. Um, and now that now that that's happened, it's you know sort of taking off. There was there was an interesting episode. We had a membership meeting at the end, at the very end, on uh, Sunday afternoon, and someone yeah. stood up and you know talked about you know that there is this. And in fact, I think he'd had a poster as well. Um, that there is there is an existing group called something like a Catholic Association of Scientists and Engineers, uh, sprinkled you know a few places here and there across North America and Europe. And it's it's apparently very much just a local sort of fellowship group. You know, get together, pray the rosary, you know, have a beer. Um, I see. That sort of yeah. thing, um, which is good. Um, but there's and there's uh, I hope that you know we we do that sort of thing, especially those of us who live a little closer to some of our peers, which is not at the moment my situation. Right. But, uh, but there's definitely uh, a lot of room for people to also sort of you know to to find venues like this and to find groups like this to state in the public square. You know that this. How did this news article? So we were we were uh, doing some research before we started talking here, and found that uh, there's a Forbes article on the first conference, which was in Chicago last April. So a Forbes article comes up if you search for the Catholic Scientists of America or a Cap Society yeah. of Catholic Scientists conference, and talking about. Let's see. Oh yes. I need to go back to the first page. I think Consul Magno must have been at the one last year. I need to go read the end of this article. I only read the first page. Um, many Catholic scientists told me this past weekend in Chicago last year that the hyped clash between science and religion is getting old. Yes, exactly. I mean, it was getting old in Chesterton's day. There's a glorious quote from Chesterton that was the uh, I made I made you know part of my email subject you know boilerplate for a while, quite a while back in the day. How did it go? Yeah. Um, the 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 I forget the battle, the fight between science and religion is this tired. I mean, I'm going to have to paraphrase. It's this tired old thing from you know basically the Victorian era, which is a bunch of basically a bunch of Protestants with their sola scriptura literalist um, reading of the Bible, which doesn't really have any historical. Uh, I'm, I'm actually going to paraphrase and lengthen it a little bit. Um, doesn't really have any historical basis. People, you know, people in the early church didn't read the Bible like this, uh, and and the conflict between that and a bunch of you know 19th century scientists who had this absurdly arrogant idea that you know on the basis of their extremely preliminary theories they knew everything and could you know and then they got into conflict with this. You know, they, they got into conflict with this intolerant, you know, unthinking, uh, foolish, you know, group of, you know, Protestant fundamentalists. And it's just a bunch yeah. of noise and bother, and really we should leave it in the 19th century. 
<laughs> right. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's really sad in a lot of ways uh, that we're still having this argument because the you know, so much of the uh, the sort of scientific uh, slash philosophical underpinning for it is gone. It's just gone. It's just absolutely gone. And it's very telling that the new atheism is so much proponent, you know, it's, it's so much a creature of evolutionary biologists who exist in this, uh -huh. in this middle state where they're talking about evolution and they simply allow themselves not to think about the fact that evolution is an epiphenomenon on top of, you know, chemistry, on top of physics, on top of, and even on top of geology, really. Um, yeah. And that, so that, you know, that evolution is their answer to everything. It's clearly their deity. And it's exactly. not, it's, it, it has no credence. It has no credibility. Um, it's really foolish. But, you know, we, we, we're still playing, we're still... I think you know, in some sense, we're still we're still punishing the 15th and 16th century, you know, corrupt, wealthy, infighting, you know, popes and prelates and nominally Catholic monarchs and all that. You know, we're we're still we're still caught in that, you know, punishing religion for everything that's been wrong in human society and certainly Western society ever. That's, that's still, so, unfortunately, very tempting. So would you say that largely the, the uh, one motivating force that's been driving people uh, into this group and, and to that conference at CUA was uh, really uh, that, part, that point you mentioned, uh, the, the, the need to get beyond uh, the old dividing lines within science? Oh, absolutely. Or the yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, uh, um, it's, it, there's just, like I said, there's no, there's real, at, at root, there is no credibility to this whole idea that science eliminates the, quote, need for religion or anything right. of that nature. I mean, it's just that, you know, the real state of play is, you know, looked at it in as external a viewpoint as I can manage, we don't, no. <laughs> we simply yeah, don't yeah. know. There is certainly no evidence that says that, in particular, the Catholic faith, with its millennia of pondering the philosophical and scientific issues that, you know, the world presents, and the resolutions that it has, you know, evolved, <laughs> evolved um, over time, that that complex is at least as legitimate philosophically as any atheistic interpretation of reality, at least. Right. Um, and we should, frankly, I think we need to we need to get together, like what the Society of Catholic Scientists is doing, and we need to get a little bit more self-assured about it, about presenting that okay. side of things, because there's really a lot, and we and and we we need to do it again. I think it comes back to we need to do it with the with the sense that it was done in the high Middle Ages, with the confidence that you know the Scholastics, Albert the Great, Thomas Aquinas, Duns Scotus, so on, um, right. you know, 
they were confident there was an answer, and they found good answers. They didn't go at yeah. it scared. They didn't go at it so worried that, well, you know, I have to shield myself from this side or that side of the debate. It's yeah. The, yeah, there, there, there are answers to all of these problems. And if, and if I specifically don't have an answer to it, you know, to a, to a particular difficulty, whatever it may be, at this particular moment, to know that there's, you know, 700 people just in this organization who have my back, some of them probably have an idea as to what answer I could make to this. Right. Yeah. That, that by itself is very, um, is very consoling. Yeah, yeah. So uh, are they basically? Uh, so the, the the attitude is not one of um, trying to uh, to salvage a Catholic identity in uh, in a world that seems to have uh, uh, divided uh, science from from religion in some definitive way, but rather there's this uh, uniting belief that bringing the Catholic insights and wisdom to the problems and challenges and issues being discussed uh, is actually going to help solve the problems just as it has in the past. Is yeah. That, is that part of what's going on? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's definitely, I mean, and certainly from our viewpoint, let's take, let's take a nice broad viewpoint for a moment. So let's let's try to encompass the classical world and the scholastic uh, synthesis and you know the 20th century all in one you know all in one problem. Does the universe have an origin or has it always existed? Because that was Aristotle and of course you know Aristotle is playing into a tradition you know back in the depths of history. You know it's not probably a coincidence that. Of course, it's, I mean, it's not a coincidence. It's a fairly known fact um, that, you know, so we talk of the Indo-European languages. Right. There is a shared culture way back, and, you know, I'm not the person to ask about it, but I've read a little bit here and there. If you, you know, the, the, the Hindu deities, you know, the first millennium B.C., you, you can match those up with the Greek gods and the Roman gods, there's a fair amount of match up there, looking like those stories came from a very similar culture with a, with a, with a similar pantheon of deities and stories and themes. It's not surprising that, you know, Plato actually espouses a, uh, a theory of, what is the word I'm even looking for? When you're born, and then you, know, you die, and then you go to a different body, and you know transmigration of souls. And oh, uh, yes, yeah, yeah. Um, I know what you mean. Yeah. yeah. This is hilarious. Uh, um, how, <laughs> however, many people are listening to this and you know shouting the correct word at at into their uh, iPhone or whatever they're listening to this on. I'm sorry, dear listener. I'm sorry. <laughs> but in any case, you know what I'm talking about. Um, yes. And that, and the whole idea that the universe is on this, you know, it's on this constant, you know, huge cycle. And I believe in, you know, Hindu and Buddhist uh, writings, it's blown out and some of them to, you know, hundreds and thousands and millions of years long and that everything will simply return to the state that it was at. Um, Aristotle, likewise, the spheres are turning, the spheres are always turning. Aristotle believes that it has to be a prime mover, 
He doesn't believe you can yeah. have an infinite number of levels of causation. However, he believes that that causation could have been going on eternally in time. But you could just go back and back and back and back and back. I love so the scholastic uh -huh. physicist has to tangle with this because, you know, Aristotle is the best science they have to work with. And if you swallow Aristotle whole, you, you swallow that with it. Right. So, so in the process of, you know, of refining Aristotle, you have to refine that out if you're going to accept the Jewish because the universe was created by this transcendent God in time. It has a finite history it began at some point and is proceeding toward an ending of some kind. So right. that's, a, that's a large difference. I mean, it's, it is, it's large and small at the same time. You can actually, you can take that out. As a matter of fact, you can keep the vast majority, 90-odd percent of Aristotle. But nevertheless, you have, to, you have to have the courage to say no to Aristotle, which is a hard thing to do in the 13th century. And a lot of people refused. It gives you the whole, oh. it gives you the whole Averroes, Averroes being the great commentator. It gives you the whole Averroes, well, you know, um, I say this thing in church, or for that matter, I say this thing in the mosque. Um, and then in philosophy, I say something different because religion is really for these, uh, you know, foolish commoners who need that kind of story. Right. And, and that, that, and there were Christian Averroists. And to be, you know, the scholastic synthesis, you know, had to, had to overcome that and say no. And the fascinating thing, of course, is then we get to the 20th century and we get relativity and we get quantum theory, and we get the quote-unquote primordial atom, which I believe is what Lemaitre called it at the beginning, father huh. Lemaitre, by the way, um, right. or, of course, the Big Bang, and that, as a matter of fact, the physics works in such a way that, yeah, there appears to have been a beginning. There, there, there is actually a beginning in time, and we can only we can only rewind the tape about 15 billion years. And here is, and here is this radiation, the greatest part in the 60s. Here's this radiation that's actually the background, you know, that the that's actually the stretched out, cooled down explosion. We're still, you know, on into the indefinite future, bathed in the radiation that's the light of this explosion. That as the universe stretches out. The wavelength of the light, you know, the wave, the wavelength of this electromagnetic radiation has gone down and down and down and down and down to the point where now it's, you know, microwaves. It's just, right. it's just fascinating. And you know, the galaxies are all flying apart. If you, you know, if you dial the numbers back, and of course it's a little more complicated than that. But eventually you get, you get to an age that the universe is about 15, 16 billion years old, and that's just shocking. Shocking confirmation that, as a matter of fact, these little Hebrew people, 3,000 years ago, apparently their story was the right story. Uh-huh. Is that a coincidence or not? Uh-huh. Not sure. So. Uh-huh. No, that's right. And that's a fascinating conversation to still be having, and thank goodness the conversation is still... Uh, going on at conferences like this. Um, why don't we plan to talk more about this conference on our next episode? We'll close this one, uh, but I, for one, and I'm sure many others, want to hear 
more about uh, the, the group gathered and the, speak, uh, the speakers and the uh, uh, topics discussed. So uh, to be continued, all right, Paul? Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, great, great. All right. We'll talk to you next time. uh, Very fine. Take care and thanks.